The following episode is false. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number four of the Beyond Podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for all Cretans who say that all Cretans are liars. Hi, folks. Welcome back. Happy New Year. My name is Vadim, and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta-concepts. So let's just jump right in and break the ice today with a couple of jokes, okay? So here's the first one. Three blind mice walk into a bar, but they are unaware of their surroundings, so to derive humor from it would be exploitative. Okay, here's the second joke. Two muffins are sitting in an oven. One turned to the other and said, Hey, it's pretty hot in here, isn't it? The other turned and shouted, Oh my god, a talking muffin! So, the first joke is by the British comedian Bill Bailey from the 2004 Part Troll stand-up comedy tour. Now, I remember that around that time I had to purchase a region-unlocked DVD player to be able to watch the DVD of that comedy. And the second joke came from the kids of the listener Tilo in San Francisco. This is the same listener that sent us down the rabbit hole of Clean's recursion theorem in the previous episode. So, are these jokes funny? Well, I didn't hear anybody laughing! Did you? Well, I find them funny, but obviously humor depends on so many subjective and cultural contexts. Now, this podcast has listeners all around the world. Uh, The platform that hosts the podcast shows me kind of a heat map of the earth and where the downloads are happening. And yeah, it seems like there are listeners just about everywhere, which is totally awesome. And uh, my listeners happen to be mostly land-based. I have not been entirely successful in marketing meta-concepts to marine mammals. And I suppose if you're on a cruise ship out in the middle of the ocean somewhere, well, you probably have better things to do than listen to computer science and math podcasts. But in any case, if if you tell a joke, or something you consider to be a joke, to an international crowd, well, reactions are going to be mixed. And I really don't want to sit here and dissect either joke to explain why some people might find them funny. Instead, I want to discuss the madness of these jokes and the madness of other common everyday concepts. So let's start with the first joke, the one about the mice walking into a bar. Now, I said I wouldn't dissect the joke, but maybe we can diagram it instead. I know, I know it's a terrible thing to do. But imagine this joke as a box. And from inside the box, there emanates an arrow that sort of pierces the boundaries of the joke box at points at something outside the joke itself. But what does it point at? Well, maybe there's like a larger box that we could label humor. And this larger box contains, among other things, the set of all possible jokes, including this one. So the punchline of the joke references not just the joke itself, but humor as a concept. So again, picture the small box with an arrow that comes out of its middle, and then it pokes its way through the small box, but it also pokes through the outer humor box and then points back at the humor box from the outside. What about the joke about the two muffins? Mm, Cupcakes. Well, one can argue whether or not it's a real meta joke. I think meta-ness doesn't necessarily have to be about direct self-reference. In my mind, the muffin joke is funny and works because of the way it sort of subverts the uh, listener's expectations. If we were to diagram this joke, it's harder to place the arrow, but I have this vague impression of a kind of a joke within a joke or type of joke where the character is aware that they're in a joke. 
it certainly has a kind of a meta feel to it. So what about the visualizations? Were they helpful? Eh, probably not, right? Like no one has ever laughed or failed to laugh at a joke by diagramming it in some formal way. One possible exception is the American comedian Dimitri Martin, who has a very successful stand-up career enhancing his jokes with diagrams. But in his case, the diagrams are sort of part of the joke itself. On the other hand, the webcomic XKCD has many times found humor in self-describing diagrams. For example, the comic numbered 688, there's this black and white pie chart where the white portion of the pie chart has the label fraction of this image which is white, and the black portion has the label fraction of this image which is black. And then there are other visual elements in the comic. And the pie chart represents the relative proportion of black and white pixels in the image, including the pie chart itself, and also including the text. And the other parts of the comic also have these kinds of self-descriptive constructs about the entire image. And they happen to be mutually self-consistent, at least within, you know, measurement error of counting up the pixels. So of course this is all very neat and very clever and very meta. Check it out at xkcd.com. The uh, comic number again is 688. Of course, setting up this kind of image with self-consistent, self-descriptive information is probably quite time-consuming and very challenging. I would imagine that Randall Monroe, the brilliant cartoonist that makes the XKCD cartoons, uh, he probably used some kind of software to help himself develop the image in a self-consistent way. But still, I bet it was quite complicated to get it just right. But let us consider what perhaps is a simpler version of such a puzzle, where we have to make some text self-consistent. So not an image, but just a, a sentence of English text. So I'm going to give you an English sentence that attempts to describe itself, except for it starts off with some blanks. So here it is. This sentence has blank zeros, blank ones, blank twos, blank threes, blank fours, blank fives, blank sixes, blank sevens, blank eights, and blank nines. Okay, so the sentence that I just quoted, the numbers in it are all written out as decimal digits. So when I say the sentence has blank zeros, the zero is written as the digit zero, not as the English word Z-E-R-O. So the challenge is, of course, to fill in the blanks with decimal numbers in a way that keeps the sentence self-consistent. Don't you worry about blank. Let me worry about blank. For example, we could naively start with, this sentence has one zeros, one ones, but of course we get off track right away because uh, the sentence would be instantly inconsistent. It would have the digit one three times already, except where it says there's only one one. So it's not consistent with itself. And that was just, we were just getting started. Would it be easier if our template sentence spelled out the names of the digits instead? Well, let's try it out. This sentence has blank zeros. And in this case, it's Z-E-R-O's, okay? It has blank ones. And again, it's O-N-E-S, not the number one and so on. So let's try to fill in the blanks of this allegedly easier version of the problem. Okay, so let's start by naively putting a one in each blank. So the sentence will claim to have one of each digit, but of course that's not self-consistent. The actual sentence would have zero of every digit, except for the number one, of which it would have 10. So we obviously need to do something smarter. The catch, of course, is that what we place in the blanks influences what should go in the other blanks. So we can make point adjustments, but they have effects which in turn invalidate the other changes we've made. So the question is, is there a stable solution? 
Now you can try to solve this by hand and see what happens. Being lazy, I prefer to let a computer do this for me, starting with some approximate guess and then iterating towards like a stable solution. Does a stable solution exist? Well, yeah, the answer is yes. And one possible result is the following. So skip about 18 seconds ahead in the podcast if you still want to work this out for yourself. Okay, here it goes. This sentence has six zeros, two ones, one two, zero threes, zero fours, zero fives, one sixes, zero sevens, zero eights, and zero nines. Good. I also would have accepted blank, blank. You're not looking at the big picture. Okay, so that was one solution for the version of the sentence where the names of the numbers are spelled out as English words. What about the version of the sentence where the numbers are written as numbers? Well, I'll leave this as an exercise to the listener. Of course, I didn't make up this puzzle. Uh, I, I first spotted it in the book Godot Escherbach by Douglas Hofstadter. Yes, that guy again. However, I believe the puzzle predates him in the book. It's been around for a while. And yes, I know, I haven't forgotten the Mew puzzle from the previous episode. We'll be reviewing it and discussing the solution, or maybe I should say resolution, very soon. But... Not just yet. Now, if you have a solution to the self-describing sentence problem, or you have an interesting method for solving such problems, please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. So earlier, I had attempted to diagram some meta jokes. Now, jokes can be meta by referencing something outside of themselves. Maybe the joke itself, or maybe something higher up in the conceptual hierarchy, like a certain class of jokes, or all of jokes, or all of humor, and so on. And we could try to impose some order on it with like boxes and arrows, where boxes can contain other boxes, and arrows can go this way and that, breaking through walls and jumping levels in the hierarchy. Following the arrows might give us some insight into how a joke, or some other piece of creative writing, breaks the boundaries of the system. Now consider the following puzzle of self-reference called the authorship triangle. Again, thank you, Godo Escherbach. So there are these three authors, let's call them by their first initials, Z or Z if you prefer, T as in tango, and E as in echo. So Z is a fictional character who exists in a novel by the author Tango. But Tango is also fictional and exists only in a novel by Echo. So far, so good? Of course, we can deal with this level of madness. An author writing about an author? Okay, yeah, sure, we've seen that before. Thank you, Shakespeare. And others. A play within a play within a play? Okay, fine, why not? But of course, this is Hofstadter we're dealing with, so let's kick it up a notch. So, Zed is a fictional author in a novel by Tango. And Tango is herself a fictional author in a novel by Echo. And here's where it gets interesting. Echo is also fictional and exists only in a novel by Zed. Hmm. So if it helps picture three boxes labeled Zed, Tango, and Echo, with arrows from Zed to Echo, Echo to Tango, and Tango back to Zed. So Hofstetter asks us if such an authorship triangle is possible. Oh, does that confuse you? So think over it a bit. And if you're familiar with M.C. Escher's famous drawing hands sketch, the answer might be obvious. But we'll get back to this soon. We could spend a long time discussing meta-ness in art and literature, but what about real life? Okay, well, let's start with podcasting, since we're currently finding ourselves in the middle of either recording a podcast, that's me, or listening to one. That's you. 
So there's a trend of podcasts that review specific TV shows. For example, let's say once upon a time, there was a TV show that over the years developed a very loyal, devoted fan base. And even though the show has been off the air for decades, uh, those people who watched the show back in the day are still really fond of rewatching it and discussing it with other fans and going to conventions and getting dressed up and meeting the actors from the show. I think I've done enough conventions to know how to spell Melbar. And in some cases, some of these fans might want to make a podcast about the show. A common format for these podcasts is to review one episode of the show in one episode of the podcast, usually in like chronological order. Okay, so we have a podcast about a TV show. Why not? This is a normal, acceptable amount of aboutness. And yes, the words about and aboutness were italicized. But let's imagine that one of these podcasts goes above and beyond the usual standard of a hobby project. Let's say the makers of the podcast invest a lot of time and energy into making the podcast and put out a product that really can stand on its own as a creative work. The podcast itself is a show. It has a presence and existence that is not just derivative of the subject that is being reviewed. There are fans of the podcast. These people talk about the episodes of the podcast as standalone entities that just happen to be about an episode of some TV show. Maybe a fan of the podcast hasn't even seen the particular TV episode that was being reviewed on last week's podcast episode. Maybe they never will. Maybe the hosts of the podcast start putting on live shows where the fans pay to attend the show. This sort of thing really happens. There are podcasts like this for different TV shows. Some review movies, some review video games, and the really good ones do develop an identity of their own. Now let's take it to the next level. What if this hypothetical podcast about a TV show becomes such a cultural staple that somebody later on starts producing a show in which they review the podcast itself? The format doesn't really matter. It could be an article or a chat show, or indeed, it could be like a meta-podcast where each episode of the meta-podcast reviews an episode of the original podcast, which itself reviewed an episode of the TV show. Okay, well, maybe you find this idea amusing, but it sounds kind of contrived, right? Or not? So, in the United States, there had been a pair of movie critics named Gene Sisko and Roger Ebert, who appeared in a popular television program called At The Movies. So Roger Ebert specifically, he had written thousands of movie reviews for the Chicago Sun-Times over his very, very long career. And Ebert had become the first movie critic to actually win a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. His movie reviews were so well-written and so entertaining to read that I personally found myself often discussing his reviews with friends and co-workers. And it didn't even matter if we had actually seen the movie that he reviewed. The review stood on its own. And over the years, Ebert also published several books, including compilations of his own movie reviews. And as I write this podcast, I'm looking at a copy of Roger Ebert's Four Star Reviews, 1967 through 2007. I have this book on my bookshelf. And on the back of this book, as is common nowadays, there are blurbs about the book. For example, there's one that says, quote, Roger Ebert actually likes movies. It's a refreshing trait in a critic, and not as prevalent as you'd expect. Now, this review snippet came from Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle. This comment is a review of a book of movie reviews. 
what if Mick LaSalle, who I believe is still a film critic himself, what if he had reviewed a bunch of other movie review books and then put his own collected writings into a book? Well, it would be a book of reviews of books of movie reviews. And what if somebody had to provide a blurb about this compilation? What if that person were Roger Ebert himself? My head is spinning now. Now, as contrived as that sounds, these kinds of deep nestings and self-loops can happen. Now, I don't know specifically about a podcast about a podcast, but, you know, podcasts certainly can reference each other, usually in a friendly way that leads to some kind of cross-promotion. And there are TV shows out there that have been in popular culture long enough where they can't help but reference their own place in popular culture in, like, later episodes. And as far as movie critics go, well, in the year 1998, the movie Godzilla came out in the United States. This was the American version. And it was directed by uh, Roland Emmerich. And in this movie, Godzilla attacks the city of New York. And there is a minor character in the film, the mayor of New York, named Mayor Ebert. He even has an assistant named Gene. So apparently the film's director added these characters to lampoon the two movie critics because they had negatively reviewed his prior films. It stinks. So the uh, Mayor Ebert character is this bumbling idiot who makes all the bad decisions and his assistant Gene is also useless. Of course, when the movie came out, uh, Gene Sisko and Roger Ebert had to review it. Well, I don't know if they were actually obligated to review the movie, but they did anyway. And of course, both critics gave the movie low marks. They gave it thumbs down. And this was kind of the consensus, like, don't, don't waste your time on this movie. And both critics expressed disappointment that, spoiler alert, Godzilla doesn't eat them or squash them. So, of course, I found the idea of a movie critic making fun of a movie that made fun of the movie critic wonderfully circular and very amusing. On a final note, I want to read to you what Roger Ebert said at the end of the review. Now that I've inspired a character in a Godzilla movie... All I really desire is for several Ingmar Bergman characters to sit in a circle and read my reviews to one another in hushed tones. Now, how awesome would that be? Funny, right? Are you amused? Or are you still preoccupied by the authorship triangle puzzle from earlier? Okay, fine, let's get back to it. So, how can we have this full circle, okay, full triangle, where Zed is a fictional author in a novel by Tango, and Tango is a fictional author in a novel by Echo, and Echo is also fictional and exists in a novel by Zed. Well, this can't happen in real life, of course. But what if we jump out of the frame? Tango, Echo, and Zed are all themselves fictional characters in a novel by a real author. So in our diagram, the real author, let's call him H or Hotel, well, this author would have to be depicted as somehow above or beyond the diagram of the three boxes, that form the authorship triangle. It's almost like we need a higher frame or another dimension to set apart the, uh, the levels of reality. After presenting this puzzle, Hofstetter goes on to perform the same analysis of M.C. Escher's drawing hand sketch. So there's one box labeled left hand and another labeled right hand, and the two boxes have arrows leading to each other, and each arrow is labeled as draws. So the left hand draws the right hand and vice versa. And below this diagram, there's this wavy line that separates the visible world of the strange loop from the so-called inviolate levels where, where the real artist exists. So on that side of the diagram, there's a box labeled MCE for Escher with two dashed arrow lines pointing at the left hand and the right hand boxes. The paradox or the seeming paradox only exists above the separator 
the resolution is achieved below the dividing line by jumping out of the system. So this authorship triangle example and the drawing hands artwork are used as examples of what Hofstadter calls strange loops and tangled hierarchies. These sort of structures occur all over the place. The example I gave earlier of a movie critic making fun of a movie which is making fun of the movie critic, well, that's kind of funny, but it's sort of easy to untangle this. Things get a little bit more real and more serious if you think about like real systems of government where jurisdictional issues and even well-intentioned systems of checks and balances can lead to these strange feedback loops. For example, what if the Supreme Court of a hypothetical nation decides that it needs to expand the building where the justices meet? But in order to expand the building, the construction would have to affect a protected wildlife area. Animals? That's right. Animals in desperate need of rescue. So then the environmental agency of that country steps in and sues the court to prevent the construction from moving forward. Now, the case can be initially discussed in the lower courts, and imagine if it eventually gets kicked all the way up to, you guessed it, the Supreme Court. Now the group of people who make up the Supreme Court have to make a ruling on the legal standing of the construction project meant to expand the building where they work. Seems like a conflict of interest, no? And of course, you can imagine lots of other similar cases of sort of who watches the watchers. And you can walk up the stack of watchers until you get to the top, and that's when things can get tricky. And even in the case where there's some kind of mutual system of checks and balances, you could imagine a situation like the United States Congress requiring a 6-3 to three majority in future Supreme Court decisions, and this change to the rules gets declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court by a majority of only 5-4, to four, which is the current rule for majority decisions. Speaking of courts and fun twisty puzzles, are you familiar with the Protagoras Paradox? This one goes way back, all the way to the ancient Greeks. Let us cavort like the Greeks of old! You know the ones I mean. So it seems once upon a time there was a famous lawyer named Protagoras who was also a great teacher of law. So if you wanted to become a lawyer, if you wanted to get into the legal profession, it was very good for your career if you studied under him. So along came a young man named Euthus who wanted to study law. But he was poor and he couldn't afford to pay for the tuition. So instead of paying Protagoras for the lessons, he worked out a deal. Youthless would pay for his education only upon winning his first court case. Imagine getting a student loan that you don't have to repay until you get a job. But not just any job, a specific job. And you only have to repay the loan if you do well in that specific job. So that was the deal. So Protagoras was very confident in his own skills as an instructor. So he took the deal. However, after Youthless completed his studies, he decided to go into politics instead of becoming a lawyer. And as a politician, he would not be arguing any court cases. So he would never have the opportunity to win a court case. So it was kind of beginning to look like Protagoras was never going to get paid. Of course, Protagoras decided to sue his former student. See, nothing really ever changes, right? So Protagoras' argument was that no matter who won the case, he would have to get paid. And here's his reasoning. If the court ruled in favor of Protagoras, well, then the student, Youthless, would be compelled by the court to pay what he owed. If instead the court ruled in favor of Youthless, that would imply that Youthless won his first court case, and therefore he would still have to pay as per contract. So it seemed like a win-win for Protagoras. On the other hand, from Youthless's point of view, the opposite was true. If the court ruled against him, that means that he has still has not won any court cases, and he can therefore continue not paying Protagoras. 
And if the court ruled in his favor, that means he doesn't owe any money because the court just said so. Fun times. I we got us a verdict up in this high court. Speaking of difficult puzzles, do you remember the Mew problem that we discussed last time? If you haven't listened to the previous episode, go ahead and listen now. This problem was explained early in the episode. So we have a string with just the characters M and I, M-I, and there are several rules we can apply to transform the string. We can perform as many valid transforms as we'd like, but the goal is to transform the string M-I into the string MU. This problem comes, of course, from Godot Escherbach. And just as a refresher, the rules are, so we have an axiom, so that's our string MI, the starting state, and we can append the letter U to any strings that end in I. We can also double the portion of the string that comes after the M. We can replace any three I's with a U. And finally, we can remove any two U's in the string. So again, we got an email from listener Devin in Southern California. The email has the subject, it's a mu point, so you know we're off to a great start. So Devin goes on to say that the puzzle is unsolvable. And the gist of the proof is that the total number of I's in the string will never be divisible by three. So we start off with one I originally, and then the rules allow us to either double the number of I's in the string or take away three I's. However, no matter how many times we apply those rules, we cannot get rid of that final I because the number of I's will never be divisible by three. That's the gist of it. So this analysis is correct, and the whole point of the mu puzzle was about having to sometimes jump outside of the system to get some perspective on the system. If we think of the entire puzzle, let's call it the MIU system, as a formal system which is equipped with an axiom and some rules of inference, then mu is a statement which cannot be proven or disproven within the system. There's a deeper point about more sophisticated formal systems that can reason more deeply about the truth of propositions within those systems, which ultimately leads to all sorts of fun Godelian paradoxes. But that's a subject for another time. And the subject of jumping out of the system, or jutsing, well, that's one I want to discuss in the next episode. So thank you so much, Devin, for submitting your non-solution. Devin also mentions in the email that the Japanese character Mu has the meaning of nothingness or without, as in to not have. Seems very appropriate for the puzzle with no answer. And if Devon or any other listeners have a good solution to the self-describing sentence problem from earlier, I would love to hear about it. I'm particularly interested in any good algorithmic tricks one might use to solve such a problem. Please email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. By the way, Happy New Year to all of you out there. I wanted to wrap up the episode with another book review, something that thematically maybe circles back to the topic of the episode. As always, I wanted to talk about a story element that has a meta feel to it without spoiling the overall story, although in this case it might be a bit difficult. Specifically, I want to talk about the novel Contact by Carl Sagan. If you want to stay spoiler-free, go ahead and jump ahead to time code 31 minutes 24 seconds. So I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast that the movie Contact, which was based on this novel, was very formative for me personally. They should have said the poet. So beautiful. Beautiful. So beautiful. So beautiful. <laughs> 
I had read the novel after seeing the movie and the novel also left a pretty deep impression. So the movie came out in 1997. However, the novel was published all the way back in 1985. And there are many differences between the novel and the film, but the overall premise is the same. Humanity receives a message from space which contains instructions for building some kind of a machine, presumably some sort of transportation device. And our protagonist, the scientist Eleanor Ellie Arroway, is eventually chosen as a passenger. I am okay to go. In the novel, there are several other passengers that are also picked to go in the machine, but in the movie, Ellie is the only traveler. When the machine is activated, Dr. Arroway is transported through a network of wormholes to some other part of the galaxy. And eventually she finds herself on some kind of alien simulation of a beautiful tropical beach, where she meets an alien intelligence that takes the form of her father, who passed away when Ellie was very young. The only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable. In the movie, Dr. Arroway and the alien have this deep philosophical conversation about humanity and humanity's future. And in the novel, the alien also passes along some information to Dr. Arroway about a message embedded in the number pi. The machine is then returned back to Earth, uh, right back to the location at the launch site. So even though Ellie and her other passengers uh, experience many hours of subjective time, from the point of view of people on Earth, no time at all has elapsed. It was as if the machine had not actually gone anywhere. So naturally, there are many people who doubt the story, but there is one small but compelling piece of evidence in, her, in their favor. So in the movie version, Ellie's personal video recorder manages to record 18 hours of static, suggesting that she might have really experienced that subjective time. But in the novel, all the video footage is erased. So upon her return, even with all the doubt about what happened, Ellie's fame as a scientist and her influence allows her to book some supercomputer time. And she uses the computer time to compute more digits of pi than anyone had ever computed before. And when her program crunches through the digits of pi in base 11... These go to 11. She gets to this point, many, many digits deep into pi, where there's this long sequence of ones and zeros, just as the alien had suggested. And the length of this binary sequence uh, happens to be a product of two prime numbers. I don't remember specifically what they were, but let's say x and y. And when Ellie plots these ones and zeros as a two-dimensional bitmap of x pixels by y pixels, it forms the image of a circle. Consider the philosophical and metaphysical ramifications. So this suggests that she really did experience the journey through space and she really did communicate with an alien intelligence. There's also a hint here that there might be some deeper power older than the universe itself that sort of embedded this clue inside of Pi. Mind blown. Of course, Sagan was great at stuff like that. And I understand that for a mainstream movie, they had decided to go in a different direction than trying to explain the whole binary picture of a circle embedded in pi. I think the idea of 18 hours of static was a very elegant workaround. Sure, it's just static, so there's plenty of room for doubt and justifiable skepticism, but it's 18 hours of static instead of just a few moments. So what do you believe? So I have great love for the novel and the movie, and I highly recommend that you at least watch the movie. It's one of those stories that carefully balances ideas about science and faith, and it also has great visuals, and of course it's also great science fiction. Exactly what you would expect from Carl Sagan. I think it's a great tragedy that Sagan passed away before the film was completed. What happens now? 
Now, you go home. So, as always, thank you for listening to this episode. The transcript is available at thebeyondpod.com. Happy 2023, and see you next time when I would like to explore the fun topic of jumping outside of the system. Until then, goodbye. The podcaster stopped the recording and stepped away from the microphone. He still had to edit the episode and prepare it for upload. His mind was already thinking ahead to the next episode, which would explore the concept of jumping out the system. This would prove to be a challenging episode to write.